Hey, little buddies, it's Uncle Rick from the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. For this week's podcast, I have some exciting stuff for you from one of my very favorite books, Heroes of Our Revolution by T.W. Hall, written over 120 years ago, back when people still told the truth about American history. And here is some real serious American history from early in the War of Independence. This comes from chapter four in the book, which, by the way, you can listen to the entirety of, in other words, the whole book, if you're a member of the Uncle Rick Audio Book Club. So if you haven't joined, I encourage you to do that, because these books are just too good not to hear. We must now go back to the summer of 1775 once more and consider the other invasion of Canada. This was the original project of both Ethan Allen and Arnold, that's Benedict Arnold, who turned out to be a bad guy, but still a good guy at this point, uh, to move against Montreal by way of Lake Champlain. It was carried out, however, by entirely different men, and I shall therefore have to tell you about some other revolutionary heroes. Throughout New York, there were many Tories. Uh, Tories were Americans who were still loyal to the king. The colony was conquered from the Dutch, and the English settlers were of more recent arrival than in the New England colonies, and depended more upon the home government to support them against the original settlers. Indeed, had it not been for three eminent New York men, eminent, that means uh, important New York men, whose names are familiar today, it is doubtful if New York would have followed the other colonies into the War for Independence. These men were Schuyler, Clinton, and Woodhull, of whom the two first named were the chief supporters of the new cause, one representing the Dutch settlers and the other the Americans. The city of New York itself was filled with Tories, and there were many in the upper part of the colony. And these latter, in alliance with the Canadians and Indians, threatened the people of New Hampshire and New England generally. Philip Schuyler was a member of the Second Continental Congress and was one of the four original major generals appointed by that body. So he became the natural commander of the Patriots in New York. This gave him control of the forts captured by Allen and Arnold and, logically, the expedition against Montreal. He was a man of fine education, a civil and military engineer. That means he designed things to be built and had, like the others, military experience in the training school of the Patriots, the French and Indian War. He was ordered to invade Canada in September, but fell sick and had to turn the command of the expedition over to General Montgomery. He then transferred his headquarters to Albany and held the Tories and Indians in check, protected the line of communications of Montgomery's army, and forwarded supplies to it. Richard Montgomery was a native of Ireland, and had been an officer in the English army. After serving in the French and Indian Wars with the regular English army, and thus obtaining a knowledge of the country he was later to operate in, he conducted himself with great gallantry in an English expedition against the French and Spanish West Indies. He afterwards resigned his commission in the English army, and emigrating to America in 1772, became a farmer in Rhinebeck. He was a handsome, quiet, dignified man, and sided at once with the colonies in their struggle against the crown. Congress made him a brigadier general. He had no desire, he said, to abandon the quiet scheme of life he had prescribed for himself, 
But, to use his own words, the will of an oppressed people compelled to choose between liberty and slavery must be obeyed. So, he became one of Schuyler's two brigadier generals. The other was General Wooster. Schuyler's army for the invasion of Canada was to consist of about 3,000 troops. While Schuyler was making his preparations, he sent Montgomery on with 1,000 men to Crown Point. Here Montgomery learned that Governor Carleton of Canada was making preparations to place several armed ships on Lake Champlain, and Montgomery pushed on to the upper end of the lake where it emptied into the Sorrel River to prevent Carleton from doing so. About this time, Schuyler fell sick, and the command of the whole expedition fell upon Montgomery. Without waiting for his entire army to collect, Montgomery pushed on down the Sorrel River to Fort St. John, which was held by a British garrison nearly as large as the army Montgomery now had with him. He made little progress, therefore. His ammunition was scanty and his artillery ineffective. Moreover, a mutiny broke out in his army, which would have broken it up, but for Montgomery's eloquence and noble conduct. To get ammunition, Montgomery sent a small force to capture Fort Chambly, which was situated still further down the river and which was but feebly garrisoned. In this way, he obtained 120 barrels of powder, and Fort St. John soon fell into his hands with its thousand prisoners and munitions of war. It was a very plucky fight the Americans were making, wasn't it, boy? They had to capture their powder and cannon and most of their small arms from the British in order to fight the British. It is quite a matter of wonder how it was done. Montgomery now heard that Arnold with his small army was before Quebec, just as Arnold had heard that Montgomery had captured St. John's. The country was delighted with Montgomery's success at St. John's, and Congress appointed him a major general. That's a higher rank than brigadier. Montgomery immediately pushed forward to Montreal and captured it without trouble at the same time gaining mastery over a large part of Canada. Here he received Arnold's message telling of his repulse at Quebec and of the destitution of Arnold's army. Montgomery at once put himself at the head of but 300 men and pushed on to Arnold's relief over the frozen ground and through driving snow. For you'll remember that it was now November, and that means the full blast of winter in Canada. It is a pitiful picture we have here of Montgomery's tall, handsome form pushing ahead through the snowstorms, leading and cheering on his little band of rescuers, and going from a victory that had made him the darling of the country to defeat and certain death. It was the heart of winter when he joined Arnold, and when he did, these two men, so equally brave and yet so entirely different, cast about for some means to capture the city. They did not feel that they were strong enough to carry Quebec, and they did not have a force strong enough to make a regular siege of the place. Their artillery consisted of only six cannon and a howitzer, and when they placed these in a battery, erected only 40 rods, that's about 600 feet, from the walls of the town, they utterly failed to make any effect upon it. There was now less hope than ever of help from within the town, for when Carleton had got safely into it, the inhabitants, who were friendly to the colonists and who hated and feared Carleton, went out into the surrounding country in a body. In the meantime, the men began to suffer from the cold. They were insufficiently clad, and every day the cold was growing more intense and the snow deeper. 
To add to the distress, smallpox broke out in the American camp. When men were attacked by it, they wore little sprigs of hemlock in their hats. Every day the sprigs increased in number, and the men were thrown into a panic by the plague that had come upon them. Oh, if Arnold had only followed his own inclination to assault Quebec at once that first morning when he stood with his five hundred men on the heights of Abraham, instead of listening to the advice of his council of war. In the meantime, there was another mutiny which Montgomery had to quell, and at length he saw clearly that he must take the town by assault at once or retreat. Men and officers alike were for making the assault, and Montgomery gave the orders to make it on the night of the last day of that year, full of importance to America, 1775, that year which had brought such an auspicious opening to the colonies in their struggle for independence, and which was to end so disastrously. Quebec was divided into two portions, the upper and lower towns. It was expected that the English garrison would expect an attack upon the upper town, exposed as it was more naturally. Montgomery decided, therefore, merely to make a feint against this part of the city. Now, feint, that's spelled F-E-I-N-T, and that means a fake attack. He's going to send a certain number of men against the upper part of the city, hoping that the British inside will move all of their troops to that side to repel that attack. Then he's going to come with the rest of his army, which is the larger part, and hit the other side of the city. This is a very common type of diversion used in war, and uh, we were taught it when I was in the military. Colonel Livingston was to make an attack on the gate of St. John's, and set fire to it. At the same time, Major Brown was to make a feint on the bastion of Cape Diamond at the other end of the upper town. It was expected that these two false attacks would draw the greater part of the garrison into the upper town. In the meantime, Arnold, with 350 of his own men and a small body under Captain Lamb, who had handled the artillery during the various futile bombardments with great skill, was to attack the lower town on the side furthest from the river, while Montgomery, with the remainder, was to pass below the bastion attacked by Brown and, defiling along the river, attack the lower town from that side. All four attacks were to be made simultaneously at the discharge of a signal rocket. At two o'clock on the morning of the 31st of December, the various bodies repaired to their stations. Mistakes began to occur immediately. The rockets were discharged too soon, and Livingston failed to make his attack on the gate of St. John's. Montgomery descended from the heights successfully and surprised the first of the Canadian barriers after a march along the banks of the St. Lawrence. He pressed on to a blockhouse beyond. The defenders of the latter seemed to be panic-stricken for a time, and Montgomery, thinking victory already in his grasp, shouted, "'Push on, my brave fellows! Quebec is ours!' When within 40 yards of the blockhouse, however, the battery it contained suddenly opened fire and Montgomery and one of his aides fell dead. The commander of the New York troops, Captain Cheeseman, received a canister shot through the body and fell dead also while trying to push on. The next ranking officer was in the rear, and Colonel Campbell, Montgomery's quartermaster general, ordered a retreat. 
Montgomery's column therefore abandoned the field, leaving its dead to fall into the hands of the enemy. Young Aaron Burr, who though a mere boy was an aide on Montgomery's staff, tried to carry back the body of his dead general, but was forced to abandon it or be captured himself. One resolute rush after the discharge of that artillery and the blockhouse would have been captured. Montgomery would have entered the town and by aiding Arnold probably have captured it. As it was, the retreat of Montgomery's column left the whole British force free to turn against Arnold. Arnold's column was the forlorn hope. He had with him Morgan and Captain Lamb with one field piece. Arnold headed the column in person, as Montgomery had his, with 25 men. After these came the artillery of Lamb with their single field piece mounted on a sled. Behind the artillery came a company with scaling ladders, then Morgan with his rifleman, that's Daniel Morgan, you'll hear a lot about him in American history, in the rear of the main body. The field piece was carried, as they knew they would have to take a battery on their route. The field piece, however, was brought to a halt by a deep snowdrift. Nevertheless, the first battery or barrier was taken, though Arnold was wounded so severely that he had to be borne from the field. Morgan took command and pressed on. The fight at the second barrier was obstinate. Day was just dawning, and after severe fighting in which Captain Lamb was wounded by the last discharge of the enemy's cannon, the second barrier was taken. Morgan then entered the town. But the whole force of the British was now turned upon him, and he had to take refuge with his men in a stone house. This they defended, firing from the windows, until they heard of the death of Montgomery and the retreat of his column, when Morgan was compelled to surrender. And Morgan was a mighty man. I know he didn't like that surrendering business. The fragments of the little army of Americans retreated a few miles from the town and threw up hasty entrenchments, supposing that Carleton would pursue them with his victorious garrison. But the latter was content with the safety of Quebec. To his credit, be it said, that though a severe and harsh man, he was struck with so much admiration for the daring of the Americans that he treated them with great humanity and buried Montgomery's body with the honor due a soldier. Arnold, wounded and in great agony, was carried back exposed for nearly a mile from musketry fire from the walls, which are not more than 50 yards distance, and took command of the remnant of the army until he could be relieved by General Wooster, who was at Montreal. He immediately put a shattered remnant of an army into such shape that it was still dangerous to the security of Quebec. He declared that he had no thought of leaving the proud town until he conquered it in triumph. I am in the way of my duty, and I know no fear, he wrote. Thus ended the storming of Quebec, and it is sad to relate Arnold's expedition, for he did not enter the city in spite of his courageous words. He was rewarded, however, by being made a brigadier general. General Wooster did not take command of Arnold's army in person, however. He was over sixty years of age and hardly equal to the task. So Arnold, with great pertinacity, remained before the town all winter, blockading it with a force but half as large as the garrison inside. Sickness and desertion reduced this force. The Canadians, who had hailed him as a deliverer, were, now that he was beaten, afraid to further sympathize with him, and all he effected was to cut off Quebec from some occasional supplies. In the spring, General Wooster reinforced him and took command. Arnold, having been again injured by the falling of his horse, 
went back to Montreal. Then in April, General Thomas took command. The latter determined on another assault. He planned to turn a fire ship loose among the ships that lay off Quebec, and while the town was in the confusion that he expected would result from the ensuing conflagration, that means a big fire, he proposed to scale the walls with a force that now amounted to about 2,000 men. But the fire ship passed harmlessly by the shipping, and the rest of the plan was, of course, abandoned. On the 6th of May, 1776, Quebec was reinforced, and General Thomas was compelled to retreat. This he did first to Point de Chambeau, and then to the mouth of the Sorrel River, where he was reinforced by General Thompson. On the 2nd of June, General Thomas died of the smallpox, and was succeeded in command of the American forces in Canada by General Sullivan, who had arrived with still further reinforcements. The people were at last awake to the danger of being invaded in turn by the British from Canada. Throughout New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and New York, the people were in a state of consternation. They were bitter in their criticisms of the conduct of affairs in Canada and placed the blame on the head of poor General Schuyler. They accused him of not furnishing the army in Canada with sufficient replies supplies or reinforcements, and they're particularly angry at his lenient treatment of the Tories. Schuyler, however, was upheld by Washington, and at the request of the latter, did not resign as he wished to. In the meantime, the English were advancing from Quebec under the command of Maclean, and Sullivan sent General Thompson forward down the St. Lawrence to meet him. General John Sullivan was a lawyer of Durham, New Hampshire. He, with a small force, captured Fort William and Mary at Portsmouth at the commencement of hostilities, and, as I have told you, was one of the eight brigadier generals originally appointed by the Second Continental Congress. He had served under Washington at Cambridge until the British evacuated Boston, and was now taking his turn at commanding the Army of Invasion. His period of command was short and anything but brilliant, though he entered upon his work with the greatest confidence. He was totally unaware that a large British army of 1,300 men had been landed in Canada and that the force of Maclean was but the advance of it. General Thompson pushed blindly into a British force vastly greater than his own at Three Rivers and was completely routed. Sullivan, to his chagrin, had to retreat himself to Crown Point, being joined on the way by Arnold, who barely made his escape from Montreal with the few hundred men with whom he had been holding the city. And at Crown Point, Sullivan was superseded by General Gates. The British under Burgoyne were following, and thus the American invasion of Canada ended in a British invasion of New York, which it was fondly hoped would split the colonies in twain. Yep, that was their plan. I wrote about it in The Fight for Freedom, one of the um, American history textbooks that my wife and I have written. They didn't succeed in splitting the colonies because General Schuyler whipped General Burgoyne and took him and his men prisoners. But we'll have to talk about that at another time because our time is up for today. Thanks for listening, little buddies. I always love getting together with you, and I love for you to appreciate what a wonderful history America has. And I must close now, so I will sign off by encouraging you always to put God first in your life, be a patriotic American, and honor your father and your mother. So long, little buddies. Parents. 
If your kids enjoyed their visit with Uncle Rick, know that they will love the Uncle Rick Audiobook Club. The Uncle Rick Audiobook Club allows access to dozens more stories, both from history and the Bible, to help your kids learn about godly character. Here's what one parent had to say about the book club. My children love the stories. They make history so interesting. My son says it is because of the details that most textbooks don't include. Uncle Rick is easy to listen to. We love his accents and explanations. Thank you so much for that testimony. If you'd like to learn more about the Uncle Rick Book Club, please join us over at UncleRickAudios.com. That is UncleRickAudios.com. See you there.